Welcome to the Narrator Roundtable. The audiobook industry is full of voices, and we're bringing them to the table. This show is here to celebrate the vibrant spirit of audiobook narration while challenging the status quo. In each episode, we'll immerse ourselves in the rich tapestry of audiobook production, exploring its triumphs, innovations, and the remarkable individuals shaping its destiny. But here's the twist. We won't shy away from questioning the norms that have defined the space for far too long. Our goal isn't to criticize or condemn, but to spark a dialogue that encourages growth, evolution, and a broader perspective. Now, I want to make one thing clear from the outset. This podcast is a celebration, not an attack. It's an invitation to open minds and embrace change, challenging the very essence of what we thought we knew about narration. From craft to business and beyond, the roundtable turns chatting with a friend over coffee from an acting technique into an opportunity for gathering and growth. So if you're ready to be inspired, to question, and to join a community that thrives on curiosity, then fasten your seatbelts. We're about to redefine what it means to be an audiobook narrator. Get ready for engaging conversations, thought-provoking insights, and a celebration of the extraordinary in the ordinary. Welcome to the Narrator Roundtable, where curiosity meets celebration, and together we pave the way for a new era in audiobook production. Identity is confusing, to say the least. However you think about it, people carry stereotypes around with them. As audiobook narrators, we see it all the time, especially because our medium doesn't show our faces and we can be any number of people. I've seen reviews on Audible for books written by and about Black people where the listener says, you know, this was great, but I'm not sure why they didn't get a Black narrator to narrate. Uh, but the person, the narrator, was very much a Black person, and they just didn't activate the expectations about what a Black person sounds like in audio. So at the same time, authentic casting is deeply part of the conversation we're having in the industry right now. You know, narrators are encouraging each other to recommend someone else on projects where the character identity is beyond something they offer. And I personally have sent recommendations to titles where, you know, as an aside, the description said the character helps with their family's culturally specific restaurant because it made me think we're about to see into a culture that I have no insights into. And still, we're in, in an industry where straight and non-disabled actors play queer and disabled characters. I myself, as a black and queer person, have played lots of white characters and straight characters. So what does it all mean? What are we even navigating? And to what end? I've a ton of ideas on this, but when I heard a narrator friend sharing some perspectives, I knew I had to bring it to the narrator roundtable. I'm just so curious how y'all have been kind of running into this. Like when I was thinking about this topic, one of the first things I did was open the Facebook pages and like try to go back and see what the conversations have been. Wh where are y'all sitting with this right now? Where are y'all, what have y'all been thinking about? Ooh, okay. I'm going to just say as a queer person, I started in this industry in male male romance. And when I entered that genre, I was super surprised to find out that I was maybe the third actually queer man narrating queer romance. Uh, and one of the first is like in this room right now. So 
I know Joel, Joel, you had a, you had a, a brewing thought. Well, it's, it's tricky. Let me interrupt briefly to say that voice you're hearing is Joel Frumpkin, who is so many things, audiobook narrator, coach, and director, famed in the romance world. And Audiophile once said he doesn't just narrate, he performs. He's narrated nearly 200 titles as Joel Frumpkin and nearly 300 titles as Joel Leslie, where he narrates LGBT titles. But Joel doesn't need numbers to make a legacy. Um... I think one of the hard things is, is that, um, I was, when, when I knew I was coming on here, I knew we were talking about this. I did a little bit of math and I've done about 450 audiobooks, right? 350 of those are queer titles. So, a, so less than a quarter of those are male, female, or nondescript, just, you know, negligible whatever titles conversely of the earphones awards i've won i've won 12 earphones awards two of those have been for gay titles Hmm. 10 of those have been for either male female oriented stories or stories where it was not of import and you would think what that would mean is that casting directors and publishers would look at that and they would send me not one quarter of my workload. So what I think when straight narrators are taking on this work, I don't think they're aware of how many seats at the table get removed for us just Mm. by virtue of being our own authentic selves. And I think that's what's difficult. And yes, some people break through that. Vikas Adams, um, Graham Halstead, Ronnie Butler. There are a handful of people that have crossed that you know, threshold. But I am, to these publishers and to these casting directors, I am a gay narrator. That is what I am. And so when that pool of work is smaller and there are special titles that come out that can really make a difference, not just to you as an actor in your career, but to listeners and to queer audiences. It's very hard when you're not even at the forefront of the running for those titles and some straight guys are. And that's very weird at this point in history because we're at a point where now they won't cast Eva Perone unless she's Hispanic. They won't, when they announced the lead and the Funny Girl National Tour and she wasn't Jewish, people were up in arms. We wouldn't have done Some Like It Hot without a non binary actor actually playing a non binary role. We wouldn't have done Anne Juliet on Broadway without a non-binary actor playing a non-binary role. And not that long ago, Jagged Little Pill got in a huge amount of shit for casting a non-queer actor in a queer role. And so what's interesting is that the publish industry really has not—they will consider it a priority for a, a book by a queer author mm. about the queer experience. But just, but if it is a gay story, it is not of 
that level of importance to them. And I think that, you know, and people, and some people say, well, you don't know if someone's queer or not, whatever. And the reality is the act of being an out actor, the act of opening yourself up and saying, this is who I am, and knowing those numbers of doors are going to close and those opportunities are going to lessen and your pie is going to become a smaller and smaller slice is such an act of bravery and such an act of risk that I wish people thought more about rewarding that. And particularly in an industry where sometimes, you know, it's undeniable that authors are appropriating our culture and appropriating our stories. And it's well-meaning and they're allies and they do it from a place of love. But to not then say, we will include and bring to the table someone who is that is is hard. And, you know, and the listen, you know, it's hard to look on like a Facebook group of listeners where they're talking about their favorite male male narrators. And it is straight man after straight man after straight man after straight man or straight men reading together that cause the most furor and excitement in that fan community. And why is that? It's because they sound like straight men. And what's sad about that is, you know, how often for how many of us was toxic masculinity, that thing of, of, of alpha male energy that made us run away from that culture and be excluded from that culture. And so to be in our own world, in our own stories, in our own space, and see comments like, I don't like Joel Leslie because he sounds too gay, which literally will happen. And I'm like, I'm narrating a Twinkie gay character, and you still want them to sound like Chris Helmsworth, you know, is, is hard. And I understand it's, I understand that the world changes. I understand that we're on the precipice of, of in the past 10 years, you know, seven years ago, I would have played a trans character and now I wouldn't dream of it. I would recommend somebody else, you know? I can, I, I can build off that um, because Joel brought up something that I think is really important and it's something that we hear all the time, which is like, you don't know if somebody's queer. And here is, and, and this has been an evolution for me because I hear that, I understand it. And I guess the point I've gotten to is that I'm done apologizing for thinking that we should be seeking out openly queer narrators and actors to do queer books. Because, one, I'm not convinced that person that we're supposed to be considering exists. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there is a closeted queer person who is secretly going to producers and saying, hey, just so you know, I am actually gay. Uh, I don't have any experience being queer in the world, and I don't want anybody to know. But like, FYI, if you have any queer books, you can send them my way. Because they wouldn't take the books. They wouldn't because want they the books and they the wouldn't books. take so the, like, the books. First of all. First of all, I'm not convinced that person exists, and I'm not. What I think that is, is a way to cover for bad behavior. It's a way to say you can't criticize me for casting a person who is not publicly queer. It's, it's a way for straight actors to get into those jobs and not have to answer for, hey, straight person, why do you think it's okay 
to be playing a queer person. It's cover for them. So first of all, I'm not convinced that that's even a thing. But even if it is, is that closeted queer person going to be mad that an openly queer person got the job? An openly queer person is always the right answer. So why are we making excuses to try to cover up for the possibility that somebody may be, uh, and we'll never know because we can't, you know, obviously we're not, and I agree with this statement, we're not going to out anybody. We don't want people to out themselves because of the work that they do. I'm just saying, I don't know that that person exists who is seeking out queer work if they are not comfortable Mm. having their sexuality questioned. Um, or very firm in their heterosexuality. So, yeah, and I think that's something to bring up. That's like, I mean, very specific to our industry. That that we as voice actors, in in a way that doesn't appear anywhere else as actors, as narrators specifically, ask for what we want to be working on. We're like very transparent with the people giving us these opportunities about what type of work we'd like to be doing and who we are and how we identify all those things. That's a part of our job. So like what came to mind was some instances in big film where I was like, hold on a second. Some folks were sort of forced to be outed because they knew what was going on. You know, the the casting director, their agent, whatever, that's all between them. And then the public was like, hold up, and made a lot of noise about it and whatever. And then they had to come out publicly. But that we're not in the same situation in this industry. So I just, I think it's important to say that. The other extension for me of that is, I've, I've always had this question about how, how this conversation happens, especially as it ties back to other mediums outside of audiobooks. Kind of like the example Gail gave, you know, um, I remember... Uh, um, Love, Simon, when they turned it into a movie and they cast an actor who was not openly queer as the lead. Um, and it, there were a lot of things that were really interesting about the casting that complicated it for me. One was that the person that they cast as the love interest at the time of casting was not openly queer, ultimately came out, is now very well known as like a non-binary actor, all these other pieces. The other was the lead actor talked a lot about how being in that role helped open up a space for his younger brother to come out to his family. It Mm. created kind of this space for him. And at the same time, one of the comments that the director made, who, if I remember correctly, was the creator or director or executive producer or something of Will and Grace, which was another kind of like significant piece of queer media in the past. One of the comments he made was he didn't cast someone who was openly queer or didn't go out of his way to cast someone who was openly queer because he believed the role should go to the the actor who was best suited for it, which is a term I hear all the time across this conversation, kind of in any dimension, whether it's about gender, whether it's about race, whether it's about whatever it is. And I feel like the implied slight that is always there is that Either the act, the, the the black actors, the queer actors, the whatever actors aren't as good on average, or that like they just don't know how to find the right person for this role and someone's got to do it. And this was the best actor for the role. And so I, there's like these, these other dimensions to this conversation that I think actually kind of make me lean further into into all of this. Because I think for me, 
there's there's two pieces here for me. I think on one end, it's about authentic experiences. It's about people who can actually bring a lived experience to a performance. And I think on the other end for me, it's also kind of about this dynamic of like, power is the shorthand for it. Like who has been in the industry? Where has the money gone to who, you know, who is getting paid? Because you might have, like Joel was saying, this slice of work that is about queer characters. And you might have this pool of narrators who are mostly being considered for queer work. And the more that you have people who are not from that background eating away at that work, it also means that like queer narrators are having less access to the work that like fills their plate because people are having a hard time considering them for straight roles. Right. Like who has, you know, when you, when you think about like what kinds of people get tossed in what kinds of directions, I know a lot of narrators of color who do not get considered for, for books led by white characters. You know, it is a recurring problem for them, even for folks who have kind of a longer history. Um, and so it's not like these things are like going in both directions. It's not like, I think if we had an industry where there was a lot more equity around all of these different things, like no one really feels like they're being pigeonholed. Everyone kind of has all these different kind of considerations. It, I don't know that it would be as much of a problem short of books where there are a lot of considerations for kind of like the cultural implications and kind of this insider knowledge or whatever. Um, but I don't think we, I don't think we work in that space just yet, you know? No. No, that doesn't actually exist. And this like makes me think about how uh, there are elements of this that are in control at our level of the industry, but a lot of this feeds back further up the food chain in publishing, right? And Joel, you mentioned earlier, like queer authors often ha are prioritizing queer narrators, but other than that, you're not seeing it as frequently. Well, why aren't we seeing more work with queer characters written by queer authors? Like the... <sighs> This is Taika Waititi had something he said about this in terms of like the the uh, I don't know diversity rainbow being put in every single show you see now or film you see now like one character who checks each box like that that is not true representation that's not authentic representation and the place that that changes is in the writers room where people are writing what they know and that's what's getting a platform and you know there has been a tiny move in the dial in terms of more widely represented authors, but it's still mostly predominantly, you know, cis white male dominated. Yeah. I, I think there's so much to pick through in what you said, Andre. Uh, but I think maybe one important element that we didn't start with and perhaps should have is why we think it is important to look at identity and experience when it comes to casting. Uh, what's what's the argument for it? Um, and for me, I I always say that I don't think it is actually about identity necessarily. It's not necessarily about skin color or sexuality or ability or disability. But what it is about is moving through the world, having that ex having having that identity. A queer person can pass their whole lives as straight and never have the queer experience, regardless of what they know their sexuality to be. Not every black actor has the same experience walking through the world. I love that you actually used the term pass, where historically for African-American people, 
that has been something that some people have been able to benefit from is passing for white, Mm -hmm. which has been the default. So I think we have to acknowledge that, right? That there's Mm -hmm. a subconscious default where people are othered into this place that sometimes equates to unemployment, (laughs) not being acknowledged, not being celebrated, not being represented. Um, In the very beginning, Andre talking about the sound, that perception of what people believe someone sounds like. I'm a black female from the South. Every single person in my family sounds different. We can sound the same, but we have different experiences as we have left home and branched off and had our own families and whatnot. And so the sound is a little bit different. Um, and that's just within the same family. That doesn't even include a community or a state or a region. Um, and so all of that is like based on perception. So the smaller someone's world is personally, the harder it's going to be for them to branch out because they don't want to admit that they don't know someone in real life that exists. So it's difficult for them to perceive casting someone in a role to play this part that has been created, even though that might actually be the true identity of the author. (laughs) But they're being told that doesn't exist. So we're going to cast this person instead to play you, even though it's semi- biographical, autobiographical for you, but your makeup and how you identify yourself actually doesn't exist in the quote unquote mainstream. And we don't know it, but we don't want to say that we don't know it. So we're going to do this instead because we know this person can do the work. So yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit difficult. I think if people are brave to step out and even if you personally personally aren't having these experiences, getting to know people who do, <laughs> you know, uh, we all read. <laughs> um, I, I think now, because we're so connected to every moment of everything that's happening across the globe, it's way easier to do. So if you don't know, get into your network and ask people. I mean, I love it when people come to me to ask if I think I know anybody that might be right for something, I'm ready to hype somebody up. But everybody's not in that place where they're comfortable, uh, you know, to do that. And I don't really know, <laughs> unless that becomes the mainstream, I don't really know how to address that when it comes to in the office, right? Because these people are not at the table using what Joel was talking about before. These people, they're, they're not in the room. They just don't exist. Um, and then there's the whole side we haven't even touched on yet. No one has said what this person looks like. This person doesn't have an identity. They are human. So why can't anybody do it? Why is the default usually something very specific in particular <laughs> that excludes the global majority? What's that about? You, two things you said brought me to something that um, I think is important in this conversation as well, which is uh, something that unless you are a marginalized person, you may not understand as well as others, uh, which is the concept of code switching. Mm. So when somebody hears a black actor and thinks they're white, 
when somebody hears a queer actor and thinks they're straight. Uh, and this goes back to something, Andre, that you were saying before, too. It is because we have learned that to advance in the world, we have to sound a certain way. And our industry does not disabuse us of that notion. <laughs> like, no. it wants us to sound a certain even, way. Even within stories about us, mm. yes. they want, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. What, what, what I find so hilarious about the amount of male-female work that I don't get versus the male-male work is when I'm doing male-male romance, 90% of the time I'm sounding straighter than I need to sound for straight books. I'm voicing, I'm voicing men that I have met a lot of gay men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and, and they just, you know, it's just, it's a it's a fictional sound. It is it is I am trying to create an alpha sort of dynamic that is that that does not really exist under the rainbow. Um which is far more really appropriate for the way I would approach a historical male-male bodice ripper than anything in the real world of the queer sphere, you know? It's bizarre. I want to hop on what Joel, Joel said there. It's fictional, right? So even in code switching, I'm sorry, that can come from anywhere. Maybe I grew up in the Midwest and I've never, ever even had interaction on a daily basis with the quote unquote black sound because I'm not surrounded by that. I only know that because of film and television. I mean, and literally, it doesn't have to be there. I just chose that. So I'm saying people are literally are coming from all sorts of different places with different experiences and it's individual. So when someone's like, well, they were the best actor for the role, it's like, but what was the variety that you allowed yourself to take in to choose who the best actor was? If you didn't even consider someone who was queer or of another heritage, then you just eliminated people like from the get-go, if you had in your mind, you know, that you wanted like people who were redheaded and blue-eyed, that's going to be a very specific demographic. So when it comes to the fabrication or, you know, bringing life to this fictional character, what is important? Like what is the point of the existence of this character in this moment and how they're being depicted in this story. I just don't think people get that deep because what they're like knees and elbows deep in the lists and they just need to get things done. Um, and they can only go back and look at your bio so many times when you've bared your soul and you're like, these are all the things I would love to do. I don't really know. How, right. I don't know how to reconcile that. Um, I don't think that's an easy solution because I think I understand the importance of acknowledging and naming authenticity. But I believe the word has been used so much that you're losing the point that the one thing that brings us all together, and I say you as a universal you, we're human. So in this humanness, what makes this human special? And then why can't we find an actual human <laughs> to depict what is special about this fictional human. To me, that's simple. It takes yeah. effort. Yeah. But I mean, just break it down. 
But I do believe it's because there are people who are unwilling to do it. I believe there are corporations who are unwilling to give people the time and the resources to go that deep. I think you just said a mouthful, Deanna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much of this is about, as many, many things are, it's money. Mm. It's how much time these producers have to seek out the actors that they need. Um, and the, and this, we, we certainly mm. see effort being made more so mm. now than ever, um, especially when it's a very specific character that's been written by a very specific type of author. Um, I, I wouldn't want to denigrate the people who are, are making huge strides in this. And the other thing I don't want to do, I don't want to make anybody feel bad for not being good at this in the past. I've been yeah. not good at this in the past. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Yeah. Like attitudes shift and change and, and that's good. And that growth is good. And if, if we, if we waste time feeling guilty about the times that we did it poorly in the past and use that as an excuse to not do it better in the future, that's bullshit. I'm not, I'm not here for any of that. I've done bad. I, you can, if you're listening to this and thinking, I'm going to go through that guy's audible things and I'm going to find the times when he played somebody he shouldn't have. Guess what? You're going to find some cases where I, knowing what I know now, probably would have turned that book down. Same. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't care about any of that. I want to say, let's move forward. Let's do better. I am looking forward to a time, and I do think it's on the horizon. Um, not that I'm saying everything is fixed in these other areas, but like I think generally we now accept that like if it's a female protagonist in the book, it should be narrated by a female narrator. There was a time when that was not the case. I think we are generally at a time now where if the protagonist is a person of color, they try to find a person of color to narrate that protagonist. Not all the time, but I think it's much better. And I am hoping that in the near future, we reach a point where we look back at some of the ways that we cast queer books and think, ooh, that wasn't great. We, should, we really should have tried harder to find somebody uh, who better embodied that character which by the way would make for a better final product whether you realize it or not right now i mean you know kurt you said something about you said something about the money and mm. the money in ca in these casting decisions also cannot be discounted when joe arden takes i'll name a name because he's the name when Joe Arden takes on a gay title, the publisher isn't stupid. They know that that is going to pull a massive crossover audience. When Aiden Snow takes on a gay title, who I love, he's like he's a great guy, brilliant talent, takes on a gay title, they know that a, a, they are going to pull outside of our bubble of queer listeners from a more mainstream romance audience. And those dollars and cents make sense to them, right? And it's going to take a point where we reach, we're, we're going to someday, I hope in the near future, reach the threshold where somebody goes, okay, yes, Laurence Olivier playing Othello is going to do really good box office numbers, but we can't anymore. 
And I don't think we're at the point where they can, they're looking where those dollars and cents don't matter at the end of the day yet. I think you're right that the dollars and cents won't make sense until the market changes. I don't think we're going to convince producers it's a smart idea to just start casting differently. What needs to happen is the public consciousness needs to change enough. Oh, yeah. To where they won't buy the book if it's cast poorly. 100%. And I, I don't I don't think we got where we are today with other marginalized groups mm. without that happening. Right. I think yeah, yeah. I think it's 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 the market pressure that makes yeah. those changes mm. permanent. And I yeah. understand the business decisions because right now I, I'm not I'm not bashing them necessarily because I get their job is to make money. And if right mm. now the common consensus is this is an OK practice they should make the choices that make them money. That that, And the actors should take the opportunities that are offered to them. I don't begrudge them that casting opportunity, you know? I mean, but we can't negate the power of the marketing dollar, though, right? They could spend money to bring someone else that hype. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? To bring somebody else to a level of popularity or to introduce someone, you know, as a very particular type of, of hero or do you know what I mean? Like a new Mm -hmm. lead. I mean, they do it in TV and film all the time, all the time. So I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to put one foot on the other side of is I don't think that is a good enough excuse because if they wanted to do it, they could do it. You could find someone. You literally could just make a list. And if somebody decided to take someone's career, I guess, <laughs> under their wing, they, they could do it. I think it's mm-hmm. very possible to tell the public, this is your new voice of and pick whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it would work. Yeah, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it would work. True. Yeah. Does because that require, the people, though, like lifting, creating more visibility for visibility mm. might be the wrong word, more spotlight on the on the voice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like with that well, and also leveraged. And the celebration of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. because like sometimes I mean, there is a, a level of celebrity, but it's not comparable to what you would normally have for on camera people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tremendous. But what the listeners are really loyal to is that storytelling, right? Whether it's it's the game between the characters or, you know, the trope uh, that it's written in or the subgenre. Um, and, and sometimes it's about it being familiar and sometimes it's about it being brand new. So I, I don't think that's impossible, but I think somebody has to have the desire to do it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, well, because I think it's a worthy investment. I think you would be able to do it. Yeah, that's that's right. And and for those, this is an audio medium, so maybe you didn't see my face when Joel was like, "I don't fault the actor for taking the job." <laughs> Sometimes I fault the actor for taking the job because at a certain point we have to stop passing the buck. Yeah. And and we and and when I say we, I'm talking about all of us because we do this job, and and this is an experience we likely have had or will had to say. No, I'm not the right person for that job. And even if they really want you and they will find reasons to make you the right person for the job, you have to say no. I just wanted to look up the definition of authentic. And I think it's quite expansive. And it it made me think about, you know, 
um, we've talked a lot about what point in this journey are we at and that we're not far along enough. And I think that's true. We have space to continue to grow. But so the, the first couple definitions for the word authentic in Merriam-Webster are worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact, not false or imitation, real or actual, true to one's own personality, spirit, or character. Like, that's so expansive, all of that. Because mm. you know what's funny about that, Gail, um, is kind of like Deanna was saying, like for me personally, I was born in Brazil. I grew up in Seattle a lot, around a lot of mostly white and Asian um, people. I sound the way I sound. I've done books where I've been asked to sound types of black that I am not. Were mm. those performances maybe with like some more insight than most, the vast majority of white actors would be able to do? Absolutely. Were they the most authentic performance that you could have gotten out of a narrator? No, not necessarily, right? And so I, like there's even intricacies within all of these pieces. And I think like even just going back to kind of where Joel started us off, like I think what is complicated for me is the way that this works in two directions because we as actors are being thought about in uh we're talking a lot about the context of the books and then we also have to think about how we're thought about as actors. Because for one, like I said, we can we can open up one of the Facebook groups and there are plenty of people who would say, actually, no, I will take that book. I don't care if there's a black lead um, because something, something I can do this or whatever for the story. Those people still do exist, even if, you know, most of the kind of bigger, more mainstream publishers we work for, as opposed to kind of indie work, uh, are much less likely to to give someone like that the book. But the other piece, too, is what is it that we're being siphoned off into? I don't want to out you as having been the one who said this, but I think about this all the time, Dieta. And of course, we can cut this if if you don't want it in the in the text. But I think about you saying like February is when I get the most when I get the most emails from producers. Mm. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what I do in any given year. There are people I only hear from during Black History Month because I come to mind only because it's Black History Month. I'm like, yeah, yeah. okay. And I just know. And I just know. Um, I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm not a full-time narrator. Not from any lack of effort on my part. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just don't necessarily have people knocking on my door like that. Um. And it's hard to not get pigeonholed. It's hard to not get typecast in a point where yeah. if you're only thinking of me as this black female in a box, when you have something where it really doesn't matter, it's just the voice. I'm not even on that list. Like, I'm just not, I don't come to mind, um, especially, you know, if it's June. <laughs> <laughs> or mm. October, you know what I mean? Because there's just, there's, there's in the world that it, someone may be living in, like, I'm just not in that, in that stream of consciousness, you know, because the main mm. identifier they have placed on me is black alone. And I don't think mm. I'm the only person that experiences that. I think there's, you know, people who are queer, people who are female. 
you know, I, I think sometimes male is also the default. Um, definitely mm-hmm. cis is the default. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting. Like, I would love to do more fantasy sci-fi. And I'm actually surprised because on stage, it's very easy to be um, an animal, a spirit, an inanimate object. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because those are the roles that don't have to be so specific. Uh, but it, it hasn't translated to the audio world yet. You're not getting main characters that are a rock. Then nobody's like, can you play this twig? I am telling <laughs> you, I want to do a cozy mystery what? so bad where a sassy cat is like solving mm-hmm. all the crimes and has yes. telepathic powers yes. and is telling their owner like where oh to go gosh. and what to do. Um, but no, no one. Someone one's... write this book. <laughs> yes, somebody write this book in Castiana's stat. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Well, I, can can we just talk about for a second too? Like what you're what you're saying is just reminding me like how bad that feels. And can we just yeah. have a human moment to realize that part of the reason this progress doesn't happen and part of the reason it takes us a while to talk about these things is it is so easy when you're not getting cast to assume that the problem is you. Mm-hmm. And not the system. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. getting non-black books because I'm just not good enough to get them. I'm not getting non-queer books because I'm just not good enough to get them. We have to go through that whole cycle of bullshit right. just to get to, hey, maybe the problem yeah. is outside of me. Yeah. And that I is mean, an experience I, that sometimes mm. cis, white, heterosexual, Judeo-Christian people just never have to think about. And I think I think we do need to just address there's that there's that flip side of the coin that's going to come back that always is going to come back to bite you which is well would you turn down a male female book and i think i think again it comes down to that seat at the table if you look at these guys that are doing these romance guys that are getting queer title after queer title after queer title from someone like who is doing a huge amount of male male romance right if you ask those guys how many male-female titles versus male-male titles are you getting, right? They're probably going to say, ah, 70 male-female, 30 male, 30 queer, or or even, let's say, 50-50. But Kurt, if I ask you, how many male-female titles are you getting offered a year versus queer titles, what would you say the answer is? Zero. Exactly. So we need (laughs) that table space. I mean, Andre, you just did your first one, right? Yeah, it was a little earlier this year, but it it was a shock to be to be given that. Yeah, right. <laughs> but here's here's my answer to that question, which I forget exactly what you said. But like, would you turn down a male female romance? No, because I've been exposed to that my entire life. Exactly. And this is one. Maybe it's not fair, yes. but this road doesn't go both ways. Yeah. Amen. I have grown up living in that world, so I know it. You have not grown up living in my world. You do not know it. It is the same thing with with black actors playing white parts. You've been surrounded by white culture your entire lives. Media, movies, TV, books, radio. The reason we can code switch is because we've been exposed to it and because we have learned to model parts of ourselves after it. So, yes, we can go that direction. It doesn't flow back the other way. And also, you're not hurting for other work, straight people. It, exa- that And that is exactly the thing. That is exactly the thing. And I don't think 
I don't think actor the I don't think some of these actors think about that. I don't think it even enters their mind. I don't think it enters their mind, Kurt, that that you know you don't get offered a single one. Even though I have heard you voice Butch Man a whole shitload <laughs> of times. In fact, we've done the books together where your Butch Man has been fucking my not Butch Man. <laughs> you know? I mean, and you do it with remarkable skill and sound, you know, completely convincing and nuanced and it's brilliant work. Oh my God, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and but it is so weird. It is so weird that I will get, you know, all that the awards I win are for male, female stories, but mm-hmm. the work does not flow that way. I, I mean, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head for anyone. It's not usually until you feel like something has been taken away from you until you start to recognize it. And whatever that feeling is, whatever that moment is, like, I don't think everybody automatically is able to put themselves into the shoes of someone else and go, oh, wait, though, is this what you experience every day? Like someone telling you that you can't do that or that is not for you and you only can have this. Basically defining your place in the industry. When when you've proven it's nonsense. When you've proven it's not true and you've 100%. got you've got the backup to show it, that's frustrating. Yeah. 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 I mean, but I I am hopeful uh, that more and more people will begin to realize that it's not so much an us and them thing. It's really collectively um, a consciousness that I think can benefit everyone if people will just be willing to embrace it, to just be willing <laughs> to understand what someone else is going through. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I like Kurt was saying, the only reason we, as people who have been put or um, categorized as other, because there is this mainstream, is because we still take in the information of what the mainstream is. Like, we're familiar with it. You know, we know what those experiences are. We know who those people are. It's just, again, that whole thing of keeping your world small, not really branching out and getting to know the people who are different than you, that I think would make your job more difficult, Mm -hmm. whether you're the narrator, whether you're the producer, um, whether you're the proofer who's trying to get me to say something that somebody who actually lives that life would not say. Oh my gosh, this. <laughs> I think that's a whole yeah. other podcast. Yeah. And that's but... where, <laughs> well, we should have that podcast, but, but you right. know, that's, that's the, where that ethical responsibility that Kurt was alluding to before comes back yeah. around to the narrator community. Like we really yeah. truly do have the power to turn back to the people who are trying to engage us in this conversation and say, actually, Maybe you don't know all the information about me or maybe I'm not the right person or here's a great person who really is the right fit. I mean, I come from a very mixed background. I pass in a lot of circles and present in a lot of ways and people love to make up their minds about who I am and what I can do and who I'm from. And um, the amount of emails I've had with folks about not being the right person that they think I am is (laughs) more than not. More often than not, I'm responding to a casting request saying, 
this is not for me. I think that you've misunderstood or maybe I can tell you some more information about who I am. And none of those people have never sent me a job again. So I just Mm want to say that too. Like there's no, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't say no to this person because then they'll never want to work with me again. No, they respect that. They respect that. And we do have responsibility to look out for each other. And like you're saying, get to know each other. Audiobook people are wonderful people, wonderful humans. And the more we humanize each other, the more the industry at large, our listenership can humanize us as like full entities as well. Yes. And I would like to say, I know there are people that I would consider to be trailblazers because that's literally what they're trying to do is create the spaces for us every single day. So let me shout out and say thank you for that. Um, Not saying that there is no one doing it in the industry. They are. They are. But I think I think the work would just be so much richer if Mm. this openness, open palms. (laughs) would just be mm-hmm. the norm and the standard. I, I I just think the work would just benefit from it overall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there are like, I'm afraid to start naming people because I feel like I'm going to like miss someone. So I'm not going to name anybody, but there are casting directors who will send me a project and I'm like, Oh my God. Like, I feel like I've just like moved aside my monitor and like, you've seen me like mm-hmm. you oh, were yeah. having this connection because you've taken the time to like, look at my materials or ask me a follow-up question or kind of get this sense of me. And you've given me a project that, you know, I'm going to elevate because I'm excited about it and I'm connected to it. Yes. And I think for me, like the, the, the one thing that I want to add into this conversation too is There's so many books because of the way a lot of these publishers work. There's so many books that despite how incredibly written they are, were never intended to sell. They didn't have the marketing budget. They didn't have, they weren't front list, whatever it is. You know, we all do those books that like they touch us. We remember them and they sit with like no reviews on audible for the next five years. Right. And I really think that there are so many ways that we can like take opportunities like books where the expectations aren't present anyways, in terms of kind of these fiscal or financial ways and use them as more opportunities to like work with people. We don't often get chances to work with. I think a lot about narrators. I know who are fantastic narrators who are even award-winning narrators who struggle to get work because they have accents. Mm. Their natural speaking is accented and people are afraid to give them the, the, you know, contemporary lit fic where for whatever reason, it's incredibly important sarcasm that they have, you know, a standard American accent, whatever that looks like. Um, And I, I feel like it is in part, a lot of the casting process, but it's like we've discussed, it's, it's this, this kind of like unfinished social contract we seem to be in with listeners who I love, who make this industry run. You are the reason we have jobs. I want you to lean in. This is a Michelle Obama moment where like, (laughs) I really think a lot about, like Joel said, listeners who are like, "Mm, this character sounds too gay about a gay character or who say, mm, like, why didn't they hire a black narrator? Not even bothering to Google the narrator's name to see that they are 
in fact, black. Um, that, and additionally, in male-female romance, the number of fantastic female narrators who have done nothing wrong other than not have a deep voice where people are like, oh, I can barely handle the female narrator on this book, but the male narrator swoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. They hate the whole the time he's not even narrators. acting, right? Uh, but it's, it's, it, 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 there's kind of this like sandwiched situation between the casting and between the listening where I really think we can actually break a lot of premises. There's so many things that really are elevated by having, like, you know, we're, we're diving in. This is a book set in South Africa. Someone's going to come in with an authentic accent, all these other pieces. Um, but there's also, you know, like, there are productions that have in, gone in, um, like, accent blind. No one does dialect work. Everyone, even people who are related, have accents from different parts of the world. And we're willing to lean in because we love the story. Yes. And I don't think we play around with that enough in terms of bringing in our fellow narrators who have accents, who, um, you know, in any, in any number of ways, like, like Joel is saying, like thinking about, thinking about like upending this expectation of like what exactly a gay person sounds like or, or whatever it is. I think that like, we are, we are actually in a space where we can push the envelope and part of pushing the envelope is making choices about what it is we say to listeners in terms of like this is this is the voice like this is actually the person who's going to bring you this story because they're going to do a fantastic job of it and you're going to ask two questions at the beginning and as soon as those questions are answered we're going to move on and we're going to have a great time thank you for joining us for this episode of the narrator roundtable we talked all across the board in this episode about casting, solidarity, and the implications beyond the audiobook, right? Like, when does a book's casting ask for authenticity? When are we open to casting beyond the character on the page? How do we use those distinctions to invite in new voices we haven't heard before? And for me, I'm still thinking about this every day as a narrator. Which stories are mine to tell? You know, so many of my identities exist in these spaces of ambiguity, and I'm often identifying whether a story needs more perspective than I can provide. I'm Brazilian, but not Mexican, queer and non-binary, but also haven't necessarily gone through a gender transition in the way others have. An immigrant and similarly a privileged one, a Spanish speaker, but not a native speaker. And what I loved about the perspectives shared today is that this reflection doesn't start and stop with me. It's also about who is auditioning alongside me. It's about the author's relationship to these experiences. And it's about which books are being chosen for publication and production in the first place. We might not have all the answers, but I hope we got you thinking today on the Narrator Roundtable. I want to give an enormous thank you to Joel Frumkin for joining us and sharing all his perspectives. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible. We are excited to continue sharing incredible conversations about our industry and our craft with you. In the meantime, you can learn more about the podcast and find links to our social media at narratorroundtable.com. You can also submit questions for our panel of hosts and guests. What's on your mind? We want to talk about it. 
I'm Andre Santana, and I hope you will join us next time at the Narrator Roundtable. The Narrator Roundtable is produced and hosted by Andre Santana, Deanna Anthony, Gail Shallon, Kurt Graves, and Lindsay Dorcas. All copywritten material is shared with permission. Music and sound effects are licensed through Storyblocks Audio. All opinions shared are those of the individuals and do not reflect the positions or policies of any company or organization with which they happen to be associated. 